0: So wel- welcome to uh, Duke University Chapel, uh, what James B. Duke called the Great Towering Church. Um, my name's Luke Powery, I'm the Dean of the Chapel and I've been here for about five and a half years. Uh, this conversation is not only a part of the Duke Alumni Reunion Weekend, but it's also a, a, uh, a part of a bridge panel series here at Duke Chapel, where we bring people together from different walks of life, bridging perspectives, bridging stories to talk about uh, shared common interests. And today the the topic is a conversation about race, then and now. Um, And particularly, and I think you would have seen it on at least some of the description of this conversation. 31 years ago, black male Duke students were being stopped and harassed on campus. Did they belong? What were they doing? Did they have an ID? To address this problem, the then Black Student Alliance president Maurice, he goes by Mo Green, and ASDU president Jan Nolting gathered students together, public safety officers, faculty administrators together to talk through the issues and concerns of everyone involved. So the result was a, quote unquote, stop policy mutually agreed upon. So fast forward now 30 years. Headlines across the country remind us that seemingly perhaps nothing has changed. At the hands of police officers, black men are much more likely not only to be stopped, but tragically in so many situations to be killed. We've seen riots across the country whenever a not guilty verdict comes down. And so this special conversation is really linked to this beautiful story between Mo Green and and Jan Knowlton Carter, who have reconnected after so many years um, last summer, I believe, Jan, who is a Presbyterian pastor was sought out her old friend as she grappled with what to preach in the midst of pain and, and a lack of understanding about race. And what followed, I'm told, I believe, was not only the crafting of a, a sermon series or uh, studies, but the rekindling of a friendship and a desire to share about their particular stories and thoughts with others to enlarge this conversation, to keep the conversation going going for mutual learning and understanding in particular about race. So it's wonderful to have these three panelists with us. So first in the middle, we have uh, Maurice Green, Mo Green, who is the executive director of the Z. Smith Reynolds Foundation, a private family foundation that has been a catalyst for positive change in North Carolina for over 80 years and has invested more than $553 million into this state. Mo works alongside trustees and staff to spearhead the foundation's efforts to improve the quality of life for all North Carolinians. He has a bachelor's degree in political science and economics and a law degree, both from Duke. Mo is a longtime resident of North Carolina, and he's married and has two children. The Reverend Dr. Jan Knowlton Carter is an ordained Presbyterian uh, minister, PCUSA, for 21 years. And she uses her gifts in theology, community building, conflict resolution, mediation, and teaching while working with congregations in transition. That means you may hear some preaching from her today. But her most recent call is to the Church of the Pilgrims in Washington, D.C., a progressive social justice focused congregation where she serves as its transitional pastor. She holds degrees from Duke from 1998, where she served as the first woman student government president. And she has a degree also, master's in education from the University of Pennsylvania Master of Divinity from McCormick Theological Seminary and a Doctor of Ministry degree from Columbia Theological Seminary. Jan has two children, Seth and Sarah, who are in the audience today. Last but not least is Riyanka Ganguli, a senior, a Duke senior, graduating with a major in political science and a minor in chemistry. She's currently the Duke Student Government President in an Alice M. Baldwin Scholar. Next year, she will be in Beijing, China, getting her master's in global affairs with concentrations in economic and business at singkuya University through the Schwarzman Scholars Program. Uh, these are our three panelists, current Duke student, two Duke alums, and I know they have a lot of wisdom to share uh, with us today, so can we welcome our panelists? I think to to get us going, um, if if Jan and Mo could tell us a little bit about um, your own journey, you know, a little bit about yourselves, a little context of what it, how you two connected. And maybe even before that, but how you connect it here on campus, but then how you reconnect it, and what brings us to this particular conversation.
1: You gonna go? Oh, yeah, yeah I, I get to go. you, go. you got to go Okay. First. Um, I, I came to Duke, as many of us do, with uh, a lot of idealism and uh, kind of some lofty goals. I thought I'm going to come to Duke, I'm going to study international affairs, and I'm going to be Secretary of State someday, and I'm also going to be President of the Student Government. Um, I admired Elizabeth Dole, who was uh, a Secretary, she had been President of Student Government here, um, and I thought, well I can do that. Uh, But when I got here, like many of us, you know, it's an ocean, at least it felt that way, and I thought, well, I'm really arrogant, these are really smart people, I'm not going to get to do that, but I'm going to do my best. And um, so I started getting involved in things, and one of the things that I got involved in was student government. Uh, At the time, someone invited me to be on what was then called the External Affairs Committee, and that committee related to the outside world. And there was a chair of that committee who said, hey, do you know anything about this thing called divestment? And I said, no, I have no idea. Um, And so she kind of handed me what she knew about it and said, uh, go figure it out. And uh, as a second semester freshman, that led me on a journey that ended up with us passing a resolution that we thought the university should set up a committee to look at the social investments here. Um, and uh, to pay particular attention to South Africa. And so that following year, I served on that university committee with several trustees and with university faculty and with other students. And in the end of that year, my sophomore year, I sat in the boardroom with the then president of student government as I watched the conversation evolve around the board table as Duke decided to divest. And it was an incredibly powerful experience for me because I watched the combination of students working together, um, protesters out on the quad, um, and thoughtful people among the university really having deep conversation and coming to this amazing conclusion that yes, we needed to divest. I studied abroad that summer and I spent the summer discerning, well, maybe I should run for student government president. I mean, I'd, if we can get Duke to divest, maybe we can make a difference when it comes to smaller things uh, relating to making the lives of university students better. Um, and so, But at the end of that summer, I, I said, no, I'm not gonna do that. Um, and so I wasn't going to do it. And then I got a letter, I like to say a letter from God, some of you might know her, um, from a woman named Margaret Taylor Smith, who was an alumna, and she um, she knew a lot about me. The women's studies program at that time was trying to identify young women leaders here on campus and to encourage them to take leadership roles, and so Margaret wrote me a letter and said, you've done all these things and I think you should do this. And that was a turning point in my life. Um, I decided to run for student government president and I was in a field with six guys and me and I was the one who had student government experience. Um, I ended up winning, uh, which was an amazing thing. And because of that, became the first woman student government president. And that was a really transformative thing for me. Um, this university, uh, Riyanka and I were talking before, has had a long history of really empowering students and doing that through student government. And so uh, I was glad to be a part of that. And it was kind of through that and through some of our classes um, earlier, we were talking about C. Eric Lincoln yesterday and um, Mo and I, I think we're in the same class with C. Eric Lincoln. And we also were in the leadership program, I think, together. Um, and so we had an awareness of one another. But that year that I was student government president, Mo was president of the Black Student Alliance. And as Luke described, there were things happening on campus. And we, based on our friendship in part, but also by our office, um, thought it was really important that we get together and work together. And so one of the things that we did was get people into the same room to have a conversation about what could we do? How could we listen to one another? How could we be present to one another? Uh, and, and come up with a solution that made sense to all the constituencies around the table. And so uh, that experience for me was was very powerful. Fast forward a, a number of years, I, I did a lot of different things. I. Um, got some degrees. Uh, I worked for Corporate America. I ended up being a Presbyterian pastor. And uh, I have done transitional ministry in a variety of settings. I uh, work in in conflicted situations and help congregations identify what their vision is for the future, what they think God is calling them to do. And so um, I've seen a lot of different contexts. But it was uh, two summers ago in 2016, just The week that Ferguson was happening, I was by my family's plan in Hawaii. And um, in Hawaii, I was at a really nice resort. And when you're a Presbyterian pastor, I would hope when you are a human um, and you're finding yourself in that spot and this stuff is happening around the world, it causes you to think, "What, what should I do? And I was very conscious that week That I was in this incredible place of privilege and that I needed to say something about that when I came back and so I thought about it and I prayed about it and when I came back it came to me um, as some things do uh, you know I really need to call Mo I need to find him you know Google does great things for us and I knew he was superintendent of schools in Guilford County And so I reached out to him and said, hey, I hope you remember me. Um, This is what I'm thinking about. Could we have a conversation on the phone? And so um, we did that week. And it was a real blessing um, to have that conversation. And as a result, um, what I preached that Sunday was a letter to my friend Mo. And it was called a letter of confession to my friend Mo. Because part of what I said in that sermon was, even though I have this background and even though I like to think of myself as being thoughtful and progressive, the truth of the matter is that I've lived my life um, encircled in privilege in a lot of ways, very unaware of that, Um, And I have served a number of churches in places that have not included diversity, and I have not been a voice of inclusion. And mostly that's because I have worked in a place where I'm helping them deal with conflict, and so I walk in and I help them to move from where they are to where they need to be. But I think a lot of that needs to include a greater awareness of our privilege, And so part of what I said in that sermon is, I have to confess that I think that I'm a racist. And I knew when I said that, that that was quite a statement, Um, especially to be someone who thinks she's progressive and yet knows that I have not actively done things to dismantle privilege. And so that conversation um, caused us to have a really fascinating dialogue. As I was rereading all of that this morning, I was thinking, you know, I think we need to have a conversation about how that's different now that we have a different person in the White House. Um, Because we've seen a lot of things happening in the last year that um, would cause me to hesitate to use that word for myself. Um, But that was kind of how we started our conversation. We had a sermon series of four different sermons. Um, One of them was actually Mo's letter to me that with his permission, I um, preached to my congregation. And then um, we went went back and forth, but then we've also continued to have the conversation and are still trying to find ways to have the conversation, which is why we're trying to have it with you today.
2: Excellent. Um, Good afternoon to everyone. Uh, Certainly, it's a privilege for me to be here this afternoon. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about my journey, uh, and then uh, certainly look forward to the conversation that we'll have this afternoon. So, Journey, uh, for me, uh, was born in New York, grew up in Georgia, and uh, when it came time to select the school to go to college, uh, several folks had indicated you ought to go to an Ivy League school. I uh, haven't been born in New York. I said it's too cold to go to New York and read somewhere that Duke was the Ivy League school of the South, and there it was, uh, <laughs> the school that I thought was perfect then for me. Uh, it turned out in many ways to be a wonderful experience to be uh, a Duke student. Uh, I was able to get involved in many, many different things here. Um, and so one of the things that uh, really, as I now reflect back now 30 years, later is uh, my experience wasn't just uh, an African-American experience, but it was one that allowed me to be involved in hoof and horn. I lived in a predominantly white fraternity, although I had pledged an African-American fraternity, uh, allowed me to do things um, that really stretched my boundaries. But part of my experience was indeed being African-American. And it didn't take long for me to be on this campus and walk around this campus and be stopped uh, for being African-American. And um, the first time that that happens to you, you just sort of assume, well, that must happen to everyone. This is a school that is trying to protect uh, its students, all of its students and all of us must be uh, among those being stopped. And so. Um, it wasn't until you know, we started I started listening to conversations that other African-Americans, particularly African-American males were having that suggested to us that this was a unique, a relatively unique experience for African-Americans and in particular African-American males. And so I had been part of student government um, and uh, thought that I might even at some point be the president, only to know that if Jan was going to be running, then I was not going to be president, (laughs) Uh, and so um, was also involved in the Black Student Alliance, and as things sort of progressed, uh, found the opportunity to be the president of the Black Student Alliance. And it wasn't long after being president of the Black Student Alliance that we really said, you know, this has been going on for long enough. What are we gonna do to try to address this issue issue, among many other issues of which uh, we felt uh, Duke needed to pay attention to uh, while we were here. And so we'll talk more about then what uh, that experience was like, but I'll fast forward to say that um, after leaving Duke and Duke law school, um, I was well prepared to take on the opportunities that I, I had. Um, those included uh, being a law clerk uh, for two judges. Uh, one was uh, in the federal district court uh, in Greensboro, uh, Judge Tilley, The second one was with uh, on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, United States Court of Appeals, with Nathaniel Jones. Uh, were really amazing experiences in different ways. Uh, Nathaniel Jones, for example, was um, I always called him the unknown Thurgood marshal. He was. Uh, such a legendary figure in many ways, but he came after Thurgood Marshall as the leader of the Legal Defense Fund Um, and uh, really sort of opened uh, my mind to what sorts of things we ought to be thinking about. And then Judge Tilly uh, was someone who was just an amazing attorney and had a passion for being sure that people got treated fairly, uh, regardless of their circumstances and background. From there, then, I went to practice law at a law firm, Uh, became, it was a, for North Carolina standards, a pretty uh, large law firm, was the first African American uh, member, partner of that law firm. Left to then be the attorney for the Charlotte Mecklenburg Board of Education, transitioned to then school district administration, Uh, became the chief operating officer and then deputy superintendent of Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools, and then became the superintendent of Guilford County Schools. Um, And then uh, two years ago now uh, became uh, the executive director for uh, the Z Smith Reynolds Foundation. And all along those ways, even though uh, certainly grappled with issues um, of uh, significance in many, many different areas, race uh, comes up all the time. And so then when I receive a letter uh, or a call uh, initially from Jan, um, uh, indicate, well, no, it was, oh, it was an email. It was an email um, reaching out to me, and I thought, Jan Nolting, mm-hmm. wow. Um, it had been probably 20 something years some, since we had connected. And so um, to receive that email from Jan, and for her to say that she wanted to preach a sermon to me, Uh, about issues uh, surrounding uh, race. I thought uh, God has intervened and let's just see where this goes. And so it has been an incredible journey uh, to continue this conversation over these last couple of years with Jan uh, and to uh, begin to explore uh, issues uh, with ourselves um, and to and to pay attention then to what's going on uh, in each other's lives as well and so looking forward to the conversation that we'll have this afternoon. Could you
0: could you both say something a little more about what the kind of the texture or the climate of the campus was as it relates to race so during the 80s when you were here and then as you speak i 'm wondering it'd be interesting to hear from riyanka who 's here now to see how the that compares with the the current you know landscape of of Duke but if you could speak some more about what was happening and what were some of the issues or just the feeling on campus during that time
2: you want me to lead off sure. i 'd be happy to lead off so. I'll give you some uh, numbers as far as context, and then I'll give you sort of my sense of the the atmosphere, if you will. As far as numbers were concerned, uh, African Americans made up about five percent of the student body at that time, and um, uh, other um, uh, races uh, other than Caucasian were even smaller than that. Um, The uh, faculty, uh, African-Americans at that time uh, comprised about 2% of the faculty was African-American. And that became a significant issue that we wanted to address uh, during my time here as well. Um, and so uh, there was at that time um, a sense of, it was almost like they were you were a dual Duke student in many ways because um, even while you were a Duke student in the broader sense and you would go to classes with the majority race and you would be engaged in some activities, I suggested to you some of the things that I was involved with, you were really separate as well. Um, I remember we had uh, on the main quad something we called the black bench. Um, that's where uh, on every given day folk would walk by and we would just sort of congregate and spend some time together. And it was important, I think, for us to be there. There was the Mary Lou Williams Cultural Center, another place where African-Americans could sort of get together. And so there was this sense of, there was the broader Duke, and then there was uh, the African-American experience. And that African-American experience, while there were good moments, there were really challenging moments for for us, uh, because it felt like in many ways, Duke wanted us here but did they really want us to be involved and really be present bring our entire selves uh, to the University and so um, there were issues uh, that were certainly bubbling up um, and um, there were voices among our uh, student body that felt like we needed to raise them to the point that Duke uh, and Duke administration uh, would hear and react and respond to, to what was going on. So we were not the first of the Duke students. That had already happened. Right. And in some ways, then maybe we were sort of that second generation or so of Duke students who were no longer saying, we just want to get in the door as the first generation was doing but now we were sort of we're in the door but the door that we've walked into doesn't seem to be accepting of all that uh uh, duke uh, should i think uh, be accepting of for students uh, like ourselves and so there was a sense that we needed to figure out how then to respond to that
1: i said i came as um thinking I was gonna go into international relations, but my first semester was um, part of the 20th Century America program, and it was a small seminar program. There are a lot of seminar programs for freshmen now, but um, it was a small group. And we had some luminary professors, some of you might remember, um, Bill Shafe and Sidney Nathans. And they helped me overall, but particularly in issues about race, ask who's at the table, and more importantly, who's not at the table. And uh, I sharpened my questioning skills with their tutelage as a freshman. And so when I got involved with divestment, one of the things that really caused me to think was if we could be concerned rightly about the rights of South Africans, who are having to live separate under apartheid, then we need to take those values that are part of the university's mission and live into them here. There used to be a plaque, it's not there anymore with many of the renovations, but um, if you look at the university seal, it says eruditio et religio. And to me, uh, that really means that we need to be ethical people. We need to think about what our moral imperatives are. And I think our moral imperatives are to live and enhance and celebrate the best in all people. And so it seemed to me when I was in a leadership role that I would look around and I'd say, well, we are missing people here at the table. We're missing people of color. We are missing people of different sexual orientations. We don't in those days did not always have women at the table. And so it was a question that I kept asking. Um, I did my leadership project when I was um, involved in the public policy department. My leadership project was called colorblind question mark. And I was wrestling with the questions of, you know, what does that mean? Um, How do we have more people at the table? And what kinds of questions should, should we be asking? I was aware of tension and tension about how we did not live into what we said we were trying to do um, and and that bothered me. And so um, I think, you know, that is very present. I was noticing just, you know, we're the 30th reunion class and I looked around last night at the party and I thought, you know, this party does not reflect the statistics even that Mo just shared. Um, and that really bothered me um, because I thought here, I'm coming to this event today, I've been engaged in this conversation and, and you know, there's, that's so deep. I mean, all the issues about why that is so are layer upon layer upon layer. Um, and, mm-hmm. and we need to be thinking about that as a university and as as uh, alumni of this university.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Riyanka, how does some of what they've said connect or converge or diverge with sort of what you see yeah. happening on campus here? Definitely. Days. I
3: wish um, Michael Ivory could be here. He is the current president of BSA. Mm-hmm. And I obviously do not have the experience to share as much about what the black experience sure. is on campus. I can only share what I've heard from my friends. Um, it's very interesting that the way that you all connected working back in the day was about students getting stopped and having their IDs checked. and. I, to my understanding, it isn't as rampant, but it definitely happens on campus still. Um, Definitely I've had friends who have been stopped and they have been questioned if they go to this university. So it's really interesting to see that was a movement that you had 30 years ago, that's very much something that students face still today. Um, I know that 5% number is now around 10%. um, And unfortunately, however, how our social system works at Duke, while our diversity has increased in terms of numbers, I actually was talking to mm. some students from NCCU who are coming to visit, and they told me they were very surprised when they came to Duke's campus because just by walking around, if you look at the students, it's much more diverse than they expected. Right. And to that, I say I agree, but the social interactions student, students have still are very much um, separate. And a lot of the time, that blame is now put on the minority communities True. for finding spaces that are not safe spaces but recharging spaces so they can be in a majority space for every other component of Duke. But we have much more structural issues that prevent students from really interacting with each other. And that's something that I'm very passionate about through Duke Student Government because right now it feels that students are able to have this very diverse experience their first year because you are randomized, you are put in dorms, and the only the one unifying factor you have is that you're a Duke student, and people are forced to step out of their comfort zone and make friends that they didn't necessarily have back, in, back at home, um, have friends with different experiences, make those friendships. And that system really wanes, because from sophomore year onwards, there's self-selection into different social groups that are still very institutionally white or non-white and there is very little room for students to interact socially in that way and my firm belief is that the only way for us to progress is for people to be friends with each other just because actually the other day someone said something about black women and one of my best friends is a black woman and I didn't I wasn't just uncomfortable in that experience in in that space I was angry because I felt personally offended because this was you were talking about my friend and it was my white male friend who was talking about that. So I then talked to him about why that wasn't okay. And he was willing to listen to me even because we were friends. And that I think in those little encounters that we have that are so, that are facilitated by a college campus and we have so much opportunity because we are on a college campus that we're able to navigate or just select students to form these very diverse classes from different perspectives. I just, that is one of the few moments I've had at Duke where it's felt that that has aligned and shown its true potential. And I don't think that as Duke, Duke as an institution is really focusing on that potential. Mm -hmm.
0: Just to give folks a sense of the current uh, breakdown, as uh, as we just heard, it's a much more diverse student population. So the class of 2021, um, there the incoming class was, 25% Asian, Asian American, Pacific Islander, 13% black or African American, 14% Hispanic, Latino, Um, 1% Native American, Um, 49% male, 51% female. In terms of the current, as it relates to um, African Americans, exactly what Rianca said, about 10% of Duke undergraduates total are African-American, 15 and percent of Duke faculty are African-American. And if you combine faculty and staff numbers, recent statistics show that 22% of Duke employees overall were African-American as of 2012. And in the fiscal year 2015, um, to 2016, minority hiring of faculty at Duke increased by 16%. So I think on one level too, as the student population has diversified, um, and even in recent years, there have been different incidents on campus, you know, a, a noose was hung a couple of years ago on the Bryan Center, other epitaphs, you know, on flyers. And so, President Broadhead at the time, who was the president, put together a task force on hate and bias is what it was called. I was one of the members that served on that. Um, And it was a cross section of people to think about student life, to think about faculty, to think about (laughs) the all various um, forms um, or parts of the university and what could be changed structurally. Um, towards the university. So it seems to be an ongoing recent hires in the last year or so at, out of the office of the provost focuses on faculty uh, diversification. And so there, it's like an ongoing conversation, an ongoing process um, to make Duke or an attempt to make Duke better as it relates to these issues. Um, obviously, it's not perfect, but what, what, when you were students in the 80s, I mean, what were you hoping Duke would actually do? Um,
2: I'm happy to lead off on that as well. So uh, again, I'll provide a little bit of statistical context and then I'll talk about then um, uh, what we were hoping Duke would do or at least what I was hoping Duke would do. So uh, on two issues that I'll talk about, Um, one is around uh, the stop issue um, that uh, African-Americans being stopped uh, at a greater percentage than than other students. Um, So just some statistics um, on that front. So again, African-Americans made up about 5% of the student body at that time. Um, uh, Surveys that were done suggested about 76% of the students who were stopped and asked for their IDs were African-American. The, yeah, there were other sort of statistics that suggested that even even when asked uh, four to five times as many uh, African-Americans being stopped as any other race um, at that time. And so it was pretty clear that uh, African-Americans were being stopped in disproportionate numbers at that time. And then ultimately, uh, there was also a young uh, man, uh, James Lee, who was actually at Duke Law School uh, during the time that I was an undergrad. And uh, he walked around campus a lot. And uh, he was a big figure and uh, he was stopped repeatedly. And at one point then he was stopped. He ultimately decided to sue Duke University. Uh, that was in the same year that I was president of the, the Black Student Alliance. And so we were having these conversations and questions and issues. And, and then having a, uh, a member of the, of the law school, African-American male, say, enough is enough. I'm gonna to have to sue this university to see, see if we can't continue to try to change things. So that was one set, set of statistics. Um, the other step um, was um, around the faculty. And uh, I am certain, I mean, the numbers that you talked about, I mean, that, so <laughs> when I was here, I, it was about 2% of the African, uh, of the faculty were African-American. And, um, when I was a senior, right after I rotated off, uh, the academic council actually took a vote after. And so there was a lot of work done leading up to that vote uh, by the student body. Um, But I had rotated off of being the Black Student Alliance president. There was a vote by the academic council in the spring of my senior year uh, to start the initiative, the black faculty initiative. We had done a lot of work trying to lead up to And from our vantage point, we just wanted to have, we ended up sort of advocating for, well, can there not just be one African-American professor in every department, mean, That doesn't seem like that should be asking for that much, but that's what we were asking for. And that vote, it was actually a vote that was a tied So there were all these students, including myself that were sitting in, of a social science building on the day that the academic council took the vote and it was a tied vote. And so the chair had to break the tie. And he said, well, then we'll go forward. I don't even remember exactly what he said, but it it was almost like, well, did he vote in favor of it or not? And then someone said he voted in favor of it. And so that started us down this journey for Duke to say, well, let's at least try to have one African-American um, uh, member of the faculty, uh, and so to hear these numbers and suggest that, that those have changed. So what did we want? On the stop on both things, it became sort of this basic, we just want it to be different. If you want us to be on this campus, and uh, certainly we're also advocating for increased numbers of African Americans and other uh, people of color to be on this campus. Uh, If you want us here, then act like you want us here. Don't keep acting like you don't want us here. You know, so we would hear that, well, Duke is in, you know, around Durham. It's a largely African-American community, so we're stopping you. There's no, 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 no. You know, because there are so few of us, you know who we are. After you stop us the first time or maybe the second time, then you know who Mo Green is, Walking around this campus. You don't have to keep doing that. So, we wanted to that to stop. And so, uh, there were questions about, well, we don't believe you. So, we created ultimately this ID card that police officers or law enforcement here at Duke had to give every time that they would stop us. Began to then see the numbers of times that we were being stopped, and they were having to give us, give us these cards. On the faculty side, again, it was a basic, yeah. And again, it might've been, and I, as I look back on it, perhaps a, a sense of, I didn't, we didn't perhaps fully understand all the context around some of these issues, but there, sh- we just thought there should be more African-Americans in the faculty. Why can't that be? and so we just wanted to have increased numbers and so um, because then we thought that increased numbers would bring about a different sort of institutional mindset and we would see more of ourselves here that would be an encouragement to students the list goes on and on but we just wanted to have more and so um you know, folk uh, folk would raise questions about quotas and dot dis and and so, yeah, I understood what you're saying, but why, why can't we just have more? And so that was, I mean, yeah, that, you know, so people sort of would say that was a very militant. I don't know that it was. When you're talking about having 2% and just trying to slightly increase the numbers, it didn't seem like that was asking that much of this university to try to do. So that's what on those two issues, we wanted to see that they just do things in a way that suggested on the one hand, you've invited us in, Well will act like you really want us in your house. Treat us like we should be here. Uh, give us an opportunity to be our whole selves. And then on the other hand, give us an opportunity to have more, particularly in the faculty, certainly in the student body as well, more of us uh, be uh, able to have and enrich this university in ways that we believe that it needed to be. Those are what we were looking Mm for.
1: I think Rianca talked about um, being friends and being connected. And I think that's part of the story because for me, from the chair that I ended up sitting in, I was interested in having people have real relationships. When we got here as freshmen, Terry Sanford was the president and he was a politician and he was a people person and he didn't know a stranger. I mean, he would walk down the Bryan Center walkway and he would greet everyone and the contrast in his person and his personality um, to then Keith Brody who was the president at the time you know it's like if you know Myers-Briggs there's total extroverts and there's total introverts and Keith Brody gifted though he was was the absolute opposite in personality style from Terry Sanford and that oozed into all the decision-making across the university. And so I found myself just a student, but trying to get him to get out of his office. Um, And in that sense, like I would make it, I would have him have lunch with me. And that that sounds not connected to race, but it is connected to race because um, that I think is a description of the environment at the time things became closed off and after there had been these years under Terry Sanford where things had been really open I think and while change had not come fast enough it it at least was in conversation was my perception I wasn't here but it felt like our goal needed to be to open up the conversation and to have more people at the table of all kinds of experiences and all kinds of backgrounds and so When Mo and I were working together, our goal was to get the conversation going and to base it on relationship and friendship and mutual respect and that that was going to be how some of the goals that Mo was talking about would come to pass um, because it was about knowing folks and being, being at the table. So that was my set of goals, at least at the time.
0: Let me ask this question as people prepare their own questions. You have a little piece of paper, I think, uh, that Amanda, um, with weather today. So as well, we know the Robert E. Lee statue was removed from the front of the chapel in August. And there's a commission put together on memory and history. Out of that report, there's been um, many various educational opportunities across campus. More recently, there was, a, so as an example, a panel of scholars coming in to talk about American universities and the history of slavery and those connections and many other conversations about memory, race, out of the Franklin Humanities Institute and across campus. Um, and so as, so, thinking about um, education and keeping the conversation going. I mean, what, what do you th- think Duke, um, should do from here, you know, where should King's, Dr. King's last book, where where should we go from here? Where should we go from here as it relates to these issues surrounding race, which are very complicated and, and complex. Um, and and specifically here on Duke's campus, Duke in Durham, where one third or roughly are African American and other third white, another third Latino. And, you know, it's an interesting context as well. I mean, what, how can Duke move the conversation forward or move us toward this, uh, a a grander vision of the beloved community?
1: I think you should go first.
3: Definitely. So I think two main things. The first is that there needs to be a focus on facilitating interactions with students and I mean, for example, I just actually just remember this to so this morning. I met up for a group project and I was telling them about this panel and I'd be coming later. And the person asked me what BSA standard like stood for, what the acronym meant. And I think that was a perfect example of how people at Duke still are in their silos and have no idea past their social experience that is very homogenous. And there has to be a way to socially engineer more opportunities for students to make those friendships and to recognize other realities. Because right now there, there really isn't unless you seek it out or you're in organizations that work collaboratively with other groups. So that's, I think that needs to be number one. That, that incorporates housing. That incorporates our social culture in general. Um, access to different organizations. Um, and I'm talking outside of, this is a lot of what I'm talking about is outside the classroom because sometimes I, I think we focus too much on our curriculum and opportunities within the classroom and forget that a lot of the socialization that students have is very much outside of the classroom. Um, especially since we have such an opportunity with the residential model, what, what we could be doing a lot more. The second is to really remind students that we are in Durham. I think for the longest time, even talking to alum um, coming back for the 10-year reunion, they, the big thing is like, oh, we would never go into Durham. Um, and that has slowly changed, but I don't necessarily think that the way that we're going into Durham is the right way because we're, we're going as far as the parlor, um, the ice cream place. Um, I don't think we go further. I don't think there's any understanding of the place that we're from. And I was actually just talking to you about this before. I wish Duke would see that us being in North Carolina as a huge asset as a university, not something to cover up and to gentrify. Um, Because I'm from Seattle, Washington, and I was really excited as a political science major to be in a purple state. And I think that we could attract a lot more students who are intellectually curious about being in a state where you need to have these conversations, you need to meet in the middle because people don't just think the way that you think. And I believe that if we're able to focus on that more as a university, and we can also have students recognize um, other students' reality and we can also really talk about race more honestly once they see the spectrum of what that can mean, um, not only on
2: campus, but also off campus. You wanna go?
1: Um, you can go.
2: Okay. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'm somewhat connected with Duke uh, currently. Um, my foundation, the foundation that I work with is working with Duke University on an initiative called the North Carolina Leadership Forum. Uh, And it's a concept of trying to bring leaders together from across the state to have uh, civil uh, dialogue and see if there aren't ways for us to suggest solutions that would uh, positively impact North Carolina. And so certainly I've had interactions there and certainly with the law school, et cetera. But I can't speak to sort of the day-to-day what's going on here. And so some of this then is going to be um, more general in a way uh, than specific about, about Duke. Um, so in general, um, I think Duke, uh, like many other institutions has gotten to a place where you can say we've made progress with regards to increasing diversity. Um, So where you go from a place where you don't have any or very small numbers to now in a student body that uh, if I heard those numbers correctly, you might actually be a majority minority uh, schools, uh, university. Um, And so you can say we've made significant progress with regards to those numbers um, and diversity Uh, on the faculty, made significant progress from going where. Yeah, we were advocating for just one uh, African-American in a department to now, if I heard the numbers, 15% uh, plus over the, uh, over the uh, entire university. And so progress being made there. The second uh, step though, I would say, to me, there are probably three major steps. The second step is around inclusion. And so, so the first is sort of this diversity. Uh, the second one is around inclusion, and some of what uh, Rianco is sort of talking about, I think, sort of gets to that. How do you ensure that folks really feel like they're connected and part of this uh, this university? Um, and it sounds like there still is significant work to be done there. So even though we have changed the hues of the student body and some of the faculty, we're still uh, have the structure then that is, that is really has not changed, which gets then to this third place uh, of equity and racial equity, uh, which is really saying you've got to begin to change the power structures in a way that sort of encourages and mandates that a institution change in ways that allows in that diversity, that the changing of the student body and the increase in faculty to really feel like this is indeed their place to be as well. And that's the, in some ways, the most significant challenge that institutions have because uh, now you're talking about getting into the true, um, I like to say the really the bones of the, the structures of, of the institution and saying, how then do we operate ourselves every day? How do we get up every day and are thinking about how all students would be treated? So I was just looking at an article that was in the Chronicle yesterday uh, about LGBTQ uh, plus communities and African-American faculty members and the Divinity School and some of the concerns that are being raised there. And it sort of suggested to me that this is again, this place of, we've now got to think about how do you change the entire way that an institution thinks about uh, itself and the folk that are now part of it. So that you're constantly thinking about, gosh, we're gonna have African-Americans on campus. How about we think about being sure that they are really able to live their full and complete lives so they're not being stopped anymore that there are these ways that you're constantly saying we're going to figure out how to have interactions between the races. Um, so that's the, that's where I think Duke has to go and that's a conversation that is it has to be it has to be until it is to a place where it is people are tired of having a conversation. You haven't even gotten to the place where you need to be. And so it's a constant, continuous, continually searching and learning and improving upon ourselves. That's where I think we need to go um, based on what I've heard and my um, more uh, limited interactions with this university in the more recent times.
1: I would would echo what Mo just said and and add um, Luke's question was about being the beloved community and since I'm a pastor, I try to think about that. Um, And I really believe that we all need to live into who we are called to be. And no matter what your faith tradition happens to be, I do think we all believe that we are endowed with a certain giftedness and we are called to live into that who we are and to do so authentically. And I think what's exciting about a university like Duke is that it creates the possibility of being an incubator of possibility. And if this is a place that truly lives into that in all the ways that Mo was describing, we then are equipping future leaders to go out into the world and hopefully replicate that. Um, one of the things that I've been struck by in moving from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania last August, which is fondly called Pennsylvania, um, to Washington DC is that I moved from a very very um, homogeneous context to a very multicultural vibrant context in Washington DC and I love that I love all the folks that I interact with on on my daily walk in Washington. But I wonder, as I move around, if the lessons that are learned in such a context can be taken to a place like Harrisburg and lived Mm -hmm. into in a really different way. Because it's not as separate in Harrisburg, I don't think, as it appears to be. And what would happen if really thoughtful people who had these experiences of living into encouraging everyone to be the best that they could be, what if those folks took that to their context and shared it with everyone? I think you know, we all have a sense of responsibility about who we are supposed to be in the world. And, and as I've met with others in this reunion, you know hearing all the great stories of the great difference that people are making. If this is such a model, then we can take that out into the world and make it hopefully a, a better place. I don't think that is naively optimistic. I think that's truly what we're supposed to be all about.
0: Great. There are some questions that have come from this audience, and um, this is the fun part. <laughs> um, look- what I'll do, some are pretty specific, and then we'll move to the sort of broader, which may take more time and some of these, but I, I think we can probably get to all of them, um, hopefully. So the first one um, is, were there issues of colorism or classism within the black student community? So in the eighties? In the eighties? Yeah, when you were uh, here. So
2: I would say that there were certainly some instances of that um yeah so there's there's certainly i would say yes but i would also say because there were so few of us we found ourselves saying well we've got to figure out how to bond and be connected Mm -hmm. because we had to also then deal with the rest of what was out there so um, if i'm you know Talking about a little bit of dirty laundry, sure, there was some of that internally, um, but, uh, but we figured out how we needed to be sure that we stayed connected because all of us were experiencing things that we all sort of needed to deal with externally as well.
1: I, I had a friend, I, I don't remember if Mo shared his friendship, but he was an individual who was involved in student government. He was a vice president. He came from Penn New Jersey, and um, he ended up disappearing. And and by that, I mean he left school. And I didn't know what happened to him. And I remember talking to um, then Vice President Griffith and saying his name was Bob. And I said, you know, I I miss Bob. You know, he was my friend. Um, You know, what happened to him? And I found out that he had, one, been so involved in student government that he had not paid as much attention to his classes as he should have, but the other piece of that, I think, was that he came from a school that didn't have as many of the advantages as some other schools. He was a very smart, young man, he was a very able student, but I think that he needed more structure around him to help with success and I think he didn't have a voice to say, hey, I really need help. Um, And so it got to a place where he couldn't stay and and he disappeared. And I, I carry that story with me because I think the university didn't do enough. And some of us weren't aware that he needed help in a way that would have allowed him to be successful. And I hope that that is not happening now, but um, I know that at least in that particular story that that happened for him.
0: Hmm. Uh, here's a very uh, specific question that we talked about interactions, whether faculty, staff or within student groups, but this particular question has to do with, um, and. An issue that we faced in the late 80s was the interaction between Duke students and Duke staff, mostly minorities. Has that improved? So the interaction between Duke students and staff.
3: Um, Both of color? Okay. Um, I'm not sure what it was. I don't know about improved, but I can speak more to the current status of it. Um, And staff specifically, I know that there's definitely for the majority of students are not as respectful to the staff as they could be and there is a great disparity um, in terms of the you were saying something about the statistics for the employees here but um, majority are black and brown and I think that is it creates a weird racial dynamic between these really really privileged students not just um, not respecting staff um, it creates a very um, problematic racial element to it as well however I know that students are now the students who care and the students um, in general in the activist community are very focused on that relationship and have been working with staff um, and with workers. Um, there is the movement um, my sophomore year, I'm a senior now, um, and it has continued The Duke students and workers in solidarity has worked together to um, increase the minimum wage to $15 and in general have more rights for workers um, and working together to ensure that. Um, I know Duke student government is now working um, for ban the box um, movement with workers as well. So that relationship has formed, but I would definitely say that is far and few. Um, um, far, uh, And I would say that the, the majority still are very unaware of what workers might, the conditions that workers might face on this campus. Sure.
0: Uh, there are two here that I think are probably more specific. Um, for you, uh, Rianca, one actually is to you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we're 40 years apart in our graduation date, and that's what mm-hmm. it says. Um, but our campus racial experiences are way too similar. What are practical, um, what practical change could you recommend this minute to help break the racial segregation?
3: I would focus on housing. Um, We've seen one thing be successful at Duke and that is the first year experience to actually force students to be interacting with each other and make those friends. Um, Duke has already done something important. As of next year, students will not be allowed to select their roommates, which I think is a really good idea just because otherwise students coming from very homogenous places and will continue to room with those people, enter the same living group, and they are the reasons that many of the issues on this campus are perpetuated. So I would, I would personally like to see all selective housing be taken away, and to have that be more focused. Housing be focused on just random, randomizing. I don't know. I don't know the details. Maybe every year, but also maybe just continuing your first year dorm experience for your four years because you're finally given a chance to randomize those interactions and just living with someone things happen in the common room. You'll see them stressed out, you'll talk to them, Mm -hmm. you'll put in the group me, does anyone want to get a meal? It's just proximity allows for those interactions to happen that we just do not currently happen, Mm -hmm. that that do not currently happen. So that's my one fix that I truly do believe would create a positive Mm -hmm. change. Mm -hmm. It's radical and unfortunately there hasn't been um, a big push on it from the administrative side, but I know that students, uh, there's actually a student movement going on right now for it.
0: And you answered this question, which was related to what you just said. Is the practice of the random housing assignment, is yeah. that practice proven to promote racial understanding? And what you're saying, there's, I don't know if it's proven, but yeah, I don't know. you're saying the proximity and- Yes, the, uh, it's, all...
3: it's proven, I would say, again, I don't have the stats off the top of my head. I, I think it would be most proven for students who come to Duke without knowing as many people, just because I know I didn't know but one person from my high school that I didn't know very well. um, And because of that, I was seeking any friend, not just, um, and that didn't, it didn't really occur to me to make a certain type of friend. And I think the people that come to Duke with a lot of upperclassmen that they know, um, a lot of students coming from their schools, I I understand that it's a very very comfortable thing that I wish I had at the beginning even, Mm -hmm. but I think that causes um, a detriment to them in the long term because, They end up having preconceived notions of what Duke life should look like, um, preconceived notions of what their friend groups should be, what their friends should look like, um, the types of people they want to be, they should be friends with in order to be in these types of groups that they want to be accepted into. So I think that is where I see um, this model not as successful, but I do believe if there's more chances to really break that apart, even just not allowing for roommates. Um, and encouraging or requiring certain activities that they have to do more together, um, inc- incorporating that into the curriculum. I think there's great room for growth there. Um, it's funny because I'm a senior now and people are kind of circling back to those fresh- freshman year friends now.
0: Mm.
3: And it's funny, I, I'm just, every, there was just, there's been different gatherings that I've seen everyone's freshman year friends coming together. I'm always surprised sometimes by how diverse some of the friend groups are because they just, the, the people they interact with freshman year onwards are just, that's just not how those friend groups look anymore.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: As many of you know, this is the 50th reunion for the class of 1968, um, and um, and there's been special programming throughout this reunion led by that committee. Actually someone is, um, Dr. Bill W.C. Turner, Bill Turner is preaching tomorrow morning in here at 11 a.m. he's a, He's retiring from the Divinity School, but he was one of the first black undergraduates here in the 60s um, at Duke. But it's an interesting question here. Thinking about the silent vigil from 1968 in the history of the school. The question is, does the legacy of the silent vigil inform Duke life today? If so, how? If not, how could it? It's a great question. Yeah. Today,
3: I would say that a lot of students do not know what the silent vigil was. Um, and there there's definitely been programming um, mm-hmm. that's been repetitions of that, um, or just in honor of the silent vigil, but I would say, again, again, on a campus where a senior at Duke could not know what BSA stands for, what the acronym stands for, um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if that the silent vigil is something that we can even expect them to know about.
2: Mm.
1: And yet, when we were in school, we were very aware of it, At at least I was, I think, because it was used as a model for the conversations around divestment, that if the class of 68 could have the silent vigil, then there could be a protest on the quad, there could be tents on the campus, there could be conversations in different ways. Um, An examination of the history of that was part of what was used to strategize uh, the organizing of of the protests as well as the communication with the administration on uh, the desire to to divest. So, uh, but that was 30 years ago. So sadly, our memories on some things are short, I think.
0: Mm So 50 years later, so this is also connected to the 1968, why are we still dealing with so many of the same issues and what does that mean for the future?
3: I would say it's what you were saying earlier about the inclusion piece. The focus has been on numbers for so long and I think that numbers are incredibly powerful and there was no way of tangibly saying, proving that certain things were happening on campus. But unfortunately, I believe that numbers have been used for so long now that they're used as ways to show improvement, um, not necessarily focus on the current moment and why it's still the numbers represent a dire need for there to be change in the moment. Focus has just really been on improvement. Um, So if you think about, again, 5% population to 10% sounds great, but what does that mean in terms of how students are, their, their lives are on campus today and that if that's not changing, that's not what our focus has been on, so it's not surprising that that hasn't changed.
1: I think also Mo um, quoted a number of statistics but had an intern uh, create some statistics for us and one of the things was about the faculty and it said, it talked about the increase in African-American faculty but, but the number that he didn't mention was the number of folks who had been recruited and then left. And um, I don't have that off the top of my head, but I found that number to be a surprising number um, because one year there were 115 African-American fa- faculty and over a period of time had reached that number. But then when it looked at um, longevity, uh, there were only 45 that stayed. Um, and. The, what, the, mar, the, note I, sorry, the note I put in my margin was, you know, what's that all about? Because clearly that's um, about relationships. And th- there may be other factors involved that, you know, those faculty got recruited to some other institution or something like that. But um, I would hope that the university would be looking at relationships and not only recruiting, whether it's students or faculty or other staff um, of all kinds of diversity, but then t- having everyone be comfortable and happy enough and, and flourishing enough to want to stay. Um, and, and so I, you know, I raise a question about that. What, what is it that causes folks to stay and how can the university be more attentive to uh, all kinds of hospitality that would involve relationships that would have people want to be really committed long-term to this university?
2: So um, I'll translate perhaps to my current uh, situation because it may be uh, instructive for an institution like uh, like Duke. So I'm with the uh, Z Smith Reynolds Foundation, which is an 80 plus year old foundation that um, has done some remarkable things over the course of those 80 years uh, in North Carolina. Uh, Currently we're in five sort of focus areas. Um, But the the trustees have been about really discussing um, sort of what our new direction will be. And so uh, for those last 20 or so years, there has been a focus on issues around race in particular and around racial equity. Uh, So when it came time to talk about the new direction for the foundation. Uh, staff and the trustees really had some really um, genuine questions and conversation around this question of race and decided that it was important for us to say definitively um, that one of the things that we're going to do in the new emerging direction is to continue to have this conversation around racial equity and so what that has then meant as we're now putting the the developing that emergent direction is every time we do anything we're having to have the conversation well have we put this through a racial equity lens have we put this through a racial equity lens so all questions sort of have to go through that analysis and as I said earlier I mean yeah it can get, I mean, you can get to the point that you're just frustrated because it feels like perhaps that's what you're spending most of your time talking about. But this country has in its deep-seated bones issues around race. And so it's there. It's about then, is the institution willing to pull that out and really try to address those issues. And so in the same way that you can address those, the numbers uh, and see that improvement then is how do you then go that next level down? And so I would, I would be suggesting that a similar sort of conversation ought to be happening on this campus around racial equity. And it needs to be, again, uh, a constant uh, and continuous conversation, not just brought up uh, when the noose is hanging at the Bryan Center and then folks are saying, "Well, let's let's go a little deeper than the numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, or when Robert E. Lee is uh, outside of the chapel and what should we do? Because that seems to be the mo- All the time we should be having these kinds of conversations and having the lens then in everything that we do. I mean, I, you know, Um, have we put it through that lens and if we haven't, then we need to stop, evaluate, discuss and figure it out. It will not be easy. Um, uh, and it will not reach a solution even in the next 40 to 50 years. (laughs) But I believe that's when you will continue to see progress and positive movement. for this, this institution, and uh, for the country in general.
0: Mm -hmm. What you just said, they're connected, I'm going to make this a kind of twofold, connect these two questions, and then I'll ask a final uh, question of you all. So the question is, what efforts can be made toward becoming a more inclusive community? And then this other question is, what are the most important values? Uh, for our day, uh, today, to continue to work for change?
2: I'll let them go first and I'll be happy <laughs> to, to have to be because I've already, I've, I've sort of spoken on them. Okay. A little bit mm-hmm. of that.
1: Yeah, I think I think the values is to enhance and celebrate the the unique gifts of every individual on this campus and to do so in ways that make sure that all those gifts are represented at every table, no matter what level of decision-making or socializing it happens to be, and to then serve as as a model. Um, I think that those would be my core values that I would hope would be the values of, of the university.
3: I would also say, I, I really appreciated when you were speaking about how you really questioned if you were racist. And I think that is something that's really missing. Oftentimes I think that we, a lot of people, at least that I've seen on this campus, assume that because they have a certain set of values, because they are of a certain political party, that they are inclusive and that they care about diversity. But oftentimes I think it's really hypocritical when a lot of the people I see um, on this campus it feels that they say this a lot yet if their friend groups are all white or they come from a predominantly white area. Um, and even the, friend, the friends that they socialize with who are of color are forced to be in white spaces in order to interact with them. So I, I wish that people would, instead of talking about race so much in, in the sense of going to another rally on campus or in Durham or, just posting another photo of them caring about this. I wish they would just actually be able to look at themselves and admit that they are—they can be racist as all of us can. And I think that's what's really missing in our dialogue today, um, both outside of Duke and on Duke is that introspection um, and that ability to have the humility to understand that you are wrong and you can be wrong. Mm.
2: Uh, I'll give an example or two uh, from uh, previous work that uh, then folks may be able to translate to an institution like this. So when our superintendent of Guilford County Schools and 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 this is all in the context of uh, me saying that I think that folk have to you have to be uh, willing to put race out there consciously. So uh, as opposed to you know, folks will say, I'm colorblind, I think you actually need to be color conscious. Uh, and the reason I say that is because the institution um, will manifest itself even when you put in African-Americans or other uh, people of color, the institution will still develop the same sort of outcomes um, if you're not careful about this. So the, the examples that I'll give you are as follows. Uh, when I was superintendent of Guilford County schools, um, there were students, there were schools that were largely uh, African-American, certainly large, you know, 90 plus percent African-American students of color and largely free and reduced lunch, um, eligible students, so lower socioeconomic students. And in those contexts you would find that there were schools that would have, there was one school I remember had zero number of kids who are identified as academically gifted. You can't have hundreds of kids walking around a school and not have one kid in a school who's academically gifted. I, I it's just not, come on. And so, but it, you know, but in some of the, and some others there were one or two, and so you're thinking how could this be when the numbers across the entire district were different and even where we had African-American principals leading these schools, that was the outcome. Let me give you a second example just to try to, so I'm not even gonna to get to issues of like uh, discipline because that's what folks f- focus on or discipline and those numbers and they were dramatic there too. We had students who had performed on grade level or better on end of course examinations that when it came time to schedule them for the next higher level class, there were students who weren't getting scheduled that way. And so you say, well, maybe that's happened across the races. Let's dig in. As it turned out, the kids who were being not, so these are the kids who are performing well. The ones who were not getting scheduled to the next class, then the higher level class were almost a hundred percent African-American or Latino in our school district. So, you, you, and again, the, you, have, you have an African-American superintendent. You had four members of the Board of Education who are African-American. You had principals who are So the institution will create the same sort of outcomes, even though we've now placed people in those positions, unless we are willing to have, that's why I come back to you have got to, in every instance, have this conversation around race and say, how is it that we're, you gotta get to the point where you're tired of having the conversation because that's when you'll start to see some differences and can have some levels of improvement. Otherwise, what will happen is that the institution will continue to manifest itself. Duke University will con- will have increasing numbers as it has of faculty and students of color and Duke University will not be a changed institution.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think what
2: yeah.
1: what I learned here, and as a student, was to ask good questions. And I think what I hear you saying, Mo, is that we have to ask, keep asking the questions underneath the questions, um, rather than accept the assumptions. Absolutely. And what Ryanka said about humility, I think is a lot of it. It's how we approach these questions, not with the assumption that we know what's going on. but to continue to dig deeper and mind deeper to ask the questions about how things can look different. Mm
0: -hmm. Sort of to bring it to a close here. um, You mentioned Jan, this letter to Mo, um, which is a wonderful notion Then there was a letter uh, to Jan. Um, Sort of as a final word from each each of you, what would your letter be to Duke?
2: as it relates to this. You wanna go first since you started this whole thing? (laughs) (laughs) Since you wrote that letter to me? (laughs) Um,
1: Dear Duke, um, I think this is an incredibly fertile ground uh, for transformation, but I think sometimes this institution gets too stuck in the place that it is And while I honor history in many ways, I think that um, cultivating questioning and uh, seeing things differently is a mark of a fantastic university and needs to be continued in all issues, but especially uh, the issue of race and how we can live together and understand one another better.
2: Um, So what would I write? Um, first of all, I would I would uh, start off by writing about uh, some of the incredible positive experiences I had here at Duke. As I sit in this uh, in this chapel, um, I got married in this chapel um, 25 plus years ago, and I wouldn't choose my, my wife went to went to Duke as well and um, graduated a year after me, and so um I would not have met her but for the fact of uh, us coming to Duke mm. and yeah I have some um, just amazing lifelong uh, friends um, I have I believe gained knowledge and a way of thinking that would not have uh, occurred certainly there are many other universities I think could have done it so I, I'm not suggesting Duke is the only place but Duke is the place that I went to and allowed me to do it Um, and Duke was also the place that uh, fostered this sense of where we we can improve ourselves and the institution that we're a part of and so I would first I would start off us with a thank you and, and and a positive reflection and then from there, I think I would go to, um, and yet, um, there is more yet that can be done. And um, lay out some of those things. I, I would wanna spend some time really exploring in more detail what's happening on the campus now to be sure that I'm accurate in what I say. But then how can we as a university uh, really be, really be, the leader uh, in this state and in this nation um, in uh, really trying to transform the way that this institutions and like institutions and indeed this country deal with issues of race. Duke is, at a, is, is positioned, and I would say this, I think Duke is positioned, as Rianca was saying earlier, in just this remarkable place because we are this sort of blue state. Uh, it is a revered institution of higher learning across this country uh, and beyond, and so it needs to sort of be that. And uh, and and sort of say, how then do we continue to lead um, both uh, locally, uh, throughout the state, uh, nationally, and internationally as well around issues of race? What and yet what's next should be what I, is what I would be calling upon Duke. Mm. Mm. I'll
3: phrase it as a letter.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
3: um, dear Duke, I appreciate you and everything you have done for me, but I wish you would listen more. I wish you would listen to the students and the staff who are asking for change. I wish you would embrace your history as a innovative school in the South, instead of trying to be a university in the Northeast or on the West, um, and trying to follow along everybody else's footsteps. Um, Yeah, following along with everybody else's footsteps instead of realizing that we can forge our own path and be a leader. I wish we would be more willing to make radical change and to see that as our strength. And I believe that we have the people at this university who would be able to make these changes successful. We just don't have anyone saying yes.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you all. Thank you. You heard the name C. Eric Lincoln mentioned, who was a professor here until 2000, about 17 years or so, sociology of religion. This artwork you see hanging on the walls, is called Faith in Color, is in his honor. Uh, Duke senior uh, Evan Nicole Bell created this exhibition um, in his honor, and there's quotes from Dr. Lincoln. But anyway, I invite you to take a look at that. Also, The conversation will continue tomorrow morning uh, with Mo and Jan at 9.45 a.m. in the Divinity School down in one of the the basement rooms in Westbrook Building, um, continuing the conversation about race. And as well, W.C. Turner, Dr. Bill Turner will be uh, preaching at 11 a.m. Once again, he's from the 60s, and he may be the class of 68, I forget exactly what class. But can we thank our panelists for this panel for their contribution?